Welcome to the Heart for the World Church Sermon Podcast. It is our desire that you will be greatly encouraged as Pastor Dale Walker and others bring a fresh word from God directly to your heart. Be blessed. Well, my name is Gerald Brooks, and uh, I knew Dale when he looked young, and that was a long, long time ago when we were both in high school. Both of us have that dinosaur kind of look. Uh, we're just glad that, um, you know, Sharon looks so positively beautiful and makes up for everything else. Uh, but, but that being said, uh, I pastor in the Plano, Texas area. If you went to Dallas, you went 22 miles just directly north. Uh, you would run into Plano, Texas. I've had the privilege of being the founding pastor there for 40 years. And uh, so that's a little bit about me. But I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to jump into the Word of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to be in this great church with this great leader and this great family of people. I thank you today that, Lord, you're going to do the remarkable. See, I need your help right now. I don't know the people in this room. I don't know anything about the people in this room. But you know everyone in this room, and you know everything about everyone in this room. You know the things that people hope, and you know the things that people fear. You know the things that people dream, and you know the things that people dread. And you know the things that people tell everyone, but most importantly, you know the things that they've never whispered to anyone. Therefore, you're the one who can speak to their heart. You can go into the secret places and begin to develop their lives. So through the word of God and the spirit of God, we ask your assistance. And today we ask that the word of God would dwell in us richly in Jesus' name. And we all agree together saying, amen. Amen. In Acts 27 and verse 20, it says, and the terrible storm raged many days, blotting out the sun and the stars till all hope was gone. Paul's in one of those moments in life where life's not going according to plan. It's not only that it's not going according to plan, it's going longer than he wanted it to. And he says that perspective's lost. We can't see the sun, we can't see the stars. They can't tell whether it's day or night. But it's this phrase I want you to hold on to. It says, till all hope was gone. Till all hope was gone. See, I pastor people. I'm with people on their best day and I'm with people on their worst day. I'm with people when everything is working and I'm with people when nothing seems to be working. And one of the things that I know is that most people who come to church don't have a faith problem. See, if I were to ask the question, how many of you believe that Jesus is a healer? Hands would go up. How many of you believe that Jesus is a provider? Hands would go up. How many of you believe that Jesus can deliver and change anything? Hands would go up. But if I were to stand in the lobby of this church and begin to talk to some of you, conversations like this would begin to happen. You know what? I've just felt bad for so long, I don't know that I will ever feel good again. Or my career has been in such a tailspin, I'm not sure that our economy and our family will ever turn positive. Or my family's such a mess, but it's been this way so long, I guess this is the way it's going to be. So why is it that people can raise their hand that God heals and yet think that they will never feel better? Why is it that people can sit there and they can say God provides, 
but they think that their economy will never change? Why is it that people think that God can deliver, but they think that the problems in their family will always persist? And it's simply this. Most people in a church don't have a faith problem. They have a hope problem. And see, what hope is, is hope is believing that your tomorrow is going to be better than your today. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts. Number one is this. God created you to be a person of hope. When God designed you and he decided what was the best way for you to work, he created you to be a person of hope. Proverbs 13 and verse 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. What it's saying is, is when there's not hope inside us, our hearts don't work properly. The way that if you deprive an engine that needs gas of the gasoline, the engine can be perfect, but it's just not going to function without the gasoline. Something that needs diesel is not going to function without the diesel fuel. Well, you're not going to function without hope. Now, here's the thing. Many decades ago, I came home after a weekend of preaching. Now, let me just give you insight into a pastor's life. Most of us do multiple services, and we literally stand up, and people say, what do you do? I said, I stand up in front of thousands of people every week who stare at me bored all at the same time. I said, it's an amazing thing to watch people who are bored and stare at you and just wish that you would shut up and and move on. But I said, that's what I do. But you do that for multiple services and and you get a little bit tired. So here's the dream of every pastor to get through their weekend services and go home and take a nap. That is what every pastor wants to do. Everyone says, man, what's your goal today? Do you want to go play golf? Do you? No, I want to take a nap. That's what we all want to do. So this particular Sunday, I had taken my nap, and I woke up, and I just wanted to do something that would be refreshing to me. Well, I love to read, so I just started looking for something to read, and we had received in the mail a magazine, and the magazine was one of those trying to bait us into just sort of subscribing to it. We weren't going to do that that, but I just picked it up to see if there's anything to read, and as I was thumbing through it, I came across an article that says, I wish that I could prescribe hope. And literally, here's what I thought. I thought some pastor wrote a message, gave an interesting title like that, and somehow it got picked up on a national level, and that's what I'm thinking. And then when I started reading the article, it wasn't that. It was about this surgeon. The surgeon had done surgeries that were pretty complicated, pretty complex, and he had done them for decades. But in there, he says, I wished I could prescribe hope. And this is what he began to describe. He says, on the same day, I will do the same surgery multiple times. He says, if you looked at the cases and how they presented, they present exactly the same. This person's name's this, but this person's name that, but medically, they present exactly the same. He said, we do the exact same surgery in the exact same way, and there's no reason that this person should turn out better than this person. But he says, I've watched through the years doing the exact same thing on people presenting the exact same way, and one person does well, and one person does poorly. 
And he says, it has mystified me. And then through the decades, I began to notice something. He says, before we do surgeries, there's always the pre-surgical consult. That's where the doctor comes out. He's legally bound to tell you what all of the possible difficulties would be and that this surgery is going to do that, but there's this chance of it doing this, and he's got to do that. And he says, in those pre-surgical consults that I'm required to do, he says, I've noticed something. Sometimes I will tell someone, now, you understand this is a very challenging surgery. It's going to be very hard recovery. There are some opportunities that some things could go wrong. And at the end of it, they just stop me and they say, hey, doctor, I just want you to know I've got some things to do in my life. You know what? I've got some things that I really, really want to do, and I'm getting through this. I know that it's going to be hard, and I know it's going to be challenging, but I got some things to do, and I'm going to get on with my life. And he says, I'll hear that. And then he says, I'll talk to this other person over here who's getting the exact same surgery, give them the exact same thing that I just gave the person over there. And they'll say, well, you know what, doctor? You know, I just tend to be the one, if anything bad will happen, it'll happen to me. If anything could go wrong, it'll happen to me. And he says, here's what I've noticed. The person who goes into surgery with an expectation that they're gonna come out and that they're gonna be all right does better than the one who who goes into the surgery filled with fear and questioning whether anything will go right for them. And he says, through these decades of doing surgery, the one prescription that I wished I could write is I wished I could write hope. Just give someone a pill of hope before they go into surgery. Because he said, if they had hope, everything would turn out better. Now, I'm reading that article, and I put it down, and I go, wow, because there's nothing in that article that indicates this man is a Christian. He's just a surgeon. He doesn't talk about faith. He just talks about hope in general uh, areas. But do you know what he did? He tapped into something that he began to see that people were created to be people of hope. You were created to be a person who has hope, that has the expectation that tomorrow's going to be better than today, and the next day is going to be better than that day, and that you live your life with the expectation of confident good, rather than the expectation that every day is going to be worse, oh, my life is just poor, it'll always be this way, we will always be going through, and it's this constant talk of trauma. And so he was identifying in this article that you were created to be a person of hope. Now, some of you've watched a, a television a minister named Joel Osteen. Joel's an acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine, but his dad, John, he was a real friend of mine. And, and John was married to Dodie. That's Joel's dad. And John was very famous for missions. He, he really was a propagator of missions and missions values. And so he did this missions conference every Thanksgiving. And during this time, it was sort of like a who's who on the missions field. And if you got to speak at this, you were really, really considered in, on top of the game kind of thing. But at this one particular Thanksgiving, Dodie has watched is sitting over here with her daughters and daughters-in-law. During the middle of the service, she just said, I feel like I need to get up and go to the ladies' room. Well, she politely got up and, and went to the ladies' room. And after a few minutes, one of the daughters turned to another and says, has Dodie come back? And they said, no. And they waited a few more minutes, but they got concerned. So one of the daughters got up and went back and they found Dodie passed out in the ladies' room and she was hemorrhaging. 
Well, immediately they called Joel's brother, who is an MD. He's a surgeon also, who happened to be there. And they called him back. He sees, and is, he's looking there. Uh, he immediately does the things he can. They get 911. The ambulance gets there. They begin to stabilize. They begin to do all those kind of things that need to be done. She's taken to the hospital. Now, she's unconscious because she's been bleeding, and, and she's anemic, and, and so she's just out of it. But during this period of time, they run some tests, and they figure out she has cancer. Now, the kind of cancer that came back that she had is a very aggressive cancer, and her son, who's the doctor, knew it because of what he did as a surgeon, and he knew that the prospects of this weren't very positive. So he's really, really overwhelmed. But the family agreed that when Dodie walked up, that they would woke up, that all of them would be there, and that the brother who was the doctor would tell. Well, as he uh, began to tell when Dodie woke up, first of all, she sees the family, and she just goes into her mama mode and says, hey, guys, I was just a little tired. I passed out. But they all look at her and said, hey, it's, it's, it's not that. It's more than that. And as a result of that, um, he started telling, but he broke down because he knew what the prognosis was. And so another doctor comes in and tells her. She just smiles. She says, everything's going to be all right. She stays there. They're beginning to do treatments and do things on her. She stays there for a week or so. And then one day her son, the doctor, comes in and she looks at him and says, sweetheart, I need you to take me home. He says, Mama, you know, you just stay here. You, you need to stay here. This is the best place. No, sweetheart, I need you to take me home. Well, Mama, don't give up on the treatment. She says, I'm not giving up on the treatments. I'm going to do everything you and the other doctor said, but I need to go home. He says, well, it's just these years. No, I need to go home. I'll come back here as many times as you need me to get treated, but I need to come home. And then she called one of the daughters and she said, I want you guys to move my bed into this room. I want you to bring all these pictures, pictures of her with the horses, pictures of her with the grandkids. And let me just say something, that if you're a kid, once you give us grandkids, we don't care about your picture anymore. <laughs> You've done your job, just give us pictures of the grandkids and, and move on. Uh, you've done your part. But, but in the midst of that, you know, the son who is the doctor said, Mama, I need to know, why do you want to go home so badly? It would just be easier here. And he just respond, she responded and said, everything about where I'm at right now says I'm going to die. I need to be at my house. I need to see me riding horses, me with my grandkids, because I have a future. Now, Dodie went on and she wrote this wonderful book called Healed of Cancer. If you haven't read it, go get it. It's remarkable. But in there, she just talks about having to see that there's a tomorrow. And can I plead with some of you? Over the last 27 months, some of you have lost all hope. You've lost all expectation of good. You've lost every idea that something positive could happen, could be there. Some of you are obsessed with the news and you believe the news and the news feeds your soul and all hope has been squeezed out of you. But I want to remind you in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, it says he's the God of all hope and he fills us with hope. And some of you just need a big dose of hope that life's going to be all right, that Jesus is still Lord, God's still on the throne and life is still happening and good things happen during 
tough times. And so as a result of that, you were created to be a person of hope. It's how God made you. You weren't created to be a person that was filled with despair. You were created to be a person who was filled with hope. Number two, hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. See, you have a great pastor and he's taught you that you're unique in creation because you have a spirit. You're the only part of creation that has that. The part of you that can relate to God, connect to God, can know God. But then you also have a soul that's made up of your mind, will, and emotions. And then you have a physical body. It's basically made up of 16 buckets of water and one bucket of mud. Some of you have kept your mud looking better than some of the rest of us. Good for you. But eventually, mud just goes back to dirt. So understand that you can pull it, buff it, and tug it, but you're looking dusty right now. <laughs> but as a result of that, we're dealing with the reality that uh, what, what hope does is it protects your soul. David said in Psalm 42 and verse 11, he says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? He says, why is it you don't even get out of bed and you're already down? Why is it that you're always negative? That no matter what happens, that you're just always in a dark spot? Why art thou disquieted within me? Why are you always complaining when you don't want to complain? Unfortunately, David's not the only one who's done that. Some people, they just have that knack of just always being on the dark side of life and just always having this roar of questions. Well, what about this and that? And David knew that that wasn't the way that God wanted him to be. So he says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? But then he gives the answer, hope thou in God, for he is thy help and the health of thy countenance. He said, you know what I need? My soul has lost hope. I need hope. And in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, it says that hope is the anchor of our soul. It keeps us steady when everything's unsteady. It keeps us going when everything is confusing. It keeps us where we need to be. If you went to the Library of Congress, you would find out that they have a list. It's a ticker of the top 10 books that are read every year in the United States. Now, the Bible's the top one. They don't even put it up there because it's just a given. The Bible's the most read book. But they have the top 10. What's interesting is there's a book that frequently makes that top 10 that isn't a new book. In fact, it's a pretty old book. And it's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that book is a powerful book because of when it was written and why it was written. See, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish man who ended up being in the Nazi uh, Holocaust and being taken to the Nazi concentration camps. That during World War II, when they wanted to eradicate the Jewish people, and he had a family, they were all Jewish, and one day they're found. So they're loaded onto a train. Now, when they're loaded on the train, Victor says this. He says, we're not loaded where you just sit down. They have crammed you together where you're going to stand. And he says, we are going to go for hours on this train. You can't move. You're just stuck there. Someone's beside you. He said, it was so hard. It was hard to breathe. And he said, literally, there were people who died on the journey to get to the concentration camp. 
He said when we got to the concentration camp, they opened the doors and there were guards there and these guards are just sort of picking and choosing based on how you look to them. And so some he would send over to this lane, some he would send over to this lane. Now, if you went over to this lane, if you went over to the right lane, that meant that that was the last day you would ever live. You were going straight to the gas chambers. They had made the decision that you didn't have anything to offer and you were going straight to the gas chamber. He said, if they put you in the other lane, then what that meant was they looked at you and thought that you could work in one of their factories. He said he had family members that were put in the, the, the lane over here, the right lane, and he knew he would never see them again. He was sent in the left lane, but Victor had something that he had hidden in his clothes. See, he was a practicing psychologist and what he wanted more than anything was to publish a paper on human behavior. And so what he had done was this. He had taken that manuscript that he had created and that manuscript that he had created, he had put it in his garments hoping to sneak it through and to keep it. But when they marched him off, they marched him into this large room and this room was just a sterile kind of room and it had guards all the way around it and they all had guns and they walk in and the first thing that he's telling them is you've got to disrobe. So he takes off his clothes and when he takes off his clothes, the manuscript falls out. Well, to most people, it's just printing on a page. To him, it was his life. It's what he had been working on. It's what his soul was. It's what he really wanted to do. But when it fell out, a guard walked over and took it and just threw it. And to him, he said at that point, he lost every desire to live. He didn't want to take one more breath. He wished that he had been in the other lane. He wished he had gone to the concentration camp. He wished that he was there. And as a result of that, he wanted to just die. He said, I had no reason to live as far as he was concerned. But now he's standing there disrobed. The guards push him over to a corner. There's these garments there. They're not pristine garments. They're garments that smell from all of the foul odors of people because they're the garments of previous people who had been at the camp who were, had now died because they had been worked to death. They made him go over there and he picked up one of these garments. They all looked the same. He put them on. The sleeves had come down to here and then right below your knees, but they had one pocket in front. He said, for whatever reason, he put his hand in the pocket. When he did, he felt something. And what he felt was a little piece of paper that had been crumbled up. And he said, when he began to fill that, he thought, well, what is that? And he pulled it out and he unfolded it and he instantly knew what it was. He knew it was a part of the Shema. See, every Jewish boy from the age of five is taught to pray three prayers in the Old Testament every morning, every evening. They pray them every morning, every evening, all of their life. But they're taken from three verses. But this particular just had two words in it. And he knew it was from Deuteronomy chapter six and verse four, where it says, hero Israel, but it doesn't have that. It says, hero Israel, the Lord. All it had was the two words, the Lord. So he's standing there in this garment that someone had worn who had literally worked themselves to death and was now dead. And he's looking there and he sees these two words, the Lord. And he starts thinking, he says, I'm in a concentration camp, but he's the Lord. It looks like I will not live, but he's the Lord. It looks like there's no future, but he's the Lord. 
It looks like I will never see a day where I'm free, but he's the Lord. He said he kept reading it, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And he said the more that he read it, something began to happen in his soul. He began to have hope and it began to change from he's the Lord to I'm in this concentration camp, but he's the Lord. And then I'm in this concentration camp and it seems like there's no future, but he's the Lord. And I'm in this concentration camp and it seems like I'll die, but he's the Lord. And he said, all of a sudden, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It doesn't matter. He is the Lord. And he said, I kept reading it and all of a sudden I began to feel something come up inside and it was the expectation. Because he's the Lord, I'm gonna live through this. Because he's the Lord, I'm gonna make it through it. Because he's the Lord, I'm gonna survive this. Because he's the Lord. And he said... He said two verses, I mean two words from the Bible got him through the concentration camp. Now here's the thing I want to ask you. You have 66 books of the Bible. If you have 66 books of the Bible, do you think if two words could get him through a Nazi concentration camp, there's enough in there to get you through whatever you're going through? Maybe your marriage isn't good, but maybe you can make it. Maybe your kids aren't great, but maybe you can make it. Maybe your career's not great, but maybe you can do something with it. Maybe life, do you think there's a possibility that there's enough in that book to get you through if two words from the Bible could get him through? See, you need to understand something. You were created to be a person of hope, but hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. God wants us to be a person of faith. We having the same spirit of faith, according as written, he believed and therefore spoke. Therefore, we believe and therefore speak. That's for our heart, but our soul needs hope. It needs an expectation. It needs to believe. It needs to think that tomorrow's gonna be better than today. Well, what if it's not? That's all right. The next day will be better. The next day, the next day. But you need hope for your soul. But there's a third thing about hope is that Hope changes everything when you have it. It just changes everything. There's a pretty famous verse. It's from Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. And it says, the thoughts that I have for you are good and not evil. See, I have people come up and they'll say things like this. Well, God doesn't care about me. And I say, yes, he does. Well, what do you mean? I said, God's thinking about you. Well, God's not thinking about me. I said, yes, he is. He's thinking about, well, if he's thinking anything, he's thinking, I'm the worst person on this planet. I said, he's not thinking that because his thoughts for you are for good and not for evil. He's not thinking you're worse. He's thinking of how good you can be. He's not thinking of how bad you are. He's just thinking how good life can be. And he says, the, uh, the thoughts that I think for you, they're good and not evil. And he says, I have a plan for you to give you a future and to give you a hope. See, without hope, you have no future. And he says, I want to give you a future and I want to give you hope. But that verse is pretty famous. But what most people don't realize, it was written to Israel during a bad time. See, it was written to Israel when they weren't in Israel, they were in captivity, they were in Babylon. It was written to Israel not when things were good, but when things were bad. And these people are thinking, the only way things could be this bad is that God doesn't care. And God was saying, man, I'm thinking about you. And they're thinking, well, if God cared, I wouldn't be here. And he's saying, my thoughts aren't evil. My thoughts are good for you. And then he's sitting there and he's saying this, I have a future for you. And I have a hope. 
Now see, what God was saying is it doesn't matter where you're at. My hope can reach you and my hope can change you. The Bible says in Romans chapter four and verse 17, it says that God said to Abraham, when there was no hope, God gave him hope. When there was no reason to possibly have hope. You know, this is so hopeless. This is ridiculous. You're foolish to think there's any hope here. And yet God gave him hope. And some of you, you're just there. Man, if you knew my life, God does. If you knew where I am, he knows right where you're at. If you know what I was dealing with, he's got it down. He knows what you're dealing with. And there may be every reason for you not to have hope, but God's looking at you and God's saying, hey, I have a friend. He's since gone on to heaven, but he was the best pastor I've ever known in my life. Would to God I was as good a pastor as he was. But he didn't come to know Jesus in a church service. He didn't come to know Jesus because of a church building. In fact, he came in a very unique way. See, during the Vietnam War, he was a young lieutenant. And he was stationed on a fire base. And if you don't know the strategy, it doesn't really matter. But he's on this fire base. And a fire base is an artillery center. And what they would do is they'd send out patrols to engage the enemy and then call artillery in on where the enemy was. But the whole strategy was is that there were fire bases. And one fire base was here and one was there. And so that you always had protection. And every fire base was sending out patrols at specific times. So no patrol was out there alone. They could never be flanked. The enemy had to be in front of them the way their strategies were developed. But one day, my friend, who's this young lieutenant, is leading his patrol out. When he leads his patrol out, he takes the grid map, but he misreads it. A grid map is just a, a series of numbers that you're given, and they give you the grid that you're supposed to be on and the place that you're supposed to be, and he misread it. So he took his men down the wrong trail which meant that he didn't have protection on either side of him. And when the enemy saw that, they attacked. And they were overwhelmed. They were overrun. And so they're fighting for their lives until other people can get there, but other people do, and eventually they're able to get back to the fire base, but it came at great cost. He talks about how he stood at the door of the fire base, and when he stood at the door of the fire base, that... Um, they were standing there and he watched 20 body bags being brought in. These were men from his patrol that because he had read the grid map wrong, they died. He's standing at the gate and he's just in tears as these body bags are coming through, but he's their commander. He now has a job to do and his job is he has to write the letters to the moms and the dads and the wives. So he goes back to his little cubby hole and he has to write the first one. He grabs a bottle of whiskey and he starts drinking because he's just beside himself and he writes the first one. How do you tell someone they're never gonna see their son again, they're never gonna see uh, their husband again because you made a mistake? So he writes that first one and he can get through it and he finishes, he starts writing the second one. He throws his hands up and he just says, I can't do it. So he does the unthinkable. He takes a bottle of whiskey and he takes his firearm and he goes outside the perimeter. The perimeter is the wire of protection where everyone knows where you're at, but he went beyond that. 
He's in no man's land. There's no hope of him getting help with where he's going. But he goes to a hill over there. You never did that, but he didn't care because his plan was to kill himself. So he goes to this hill, and as he's on this hill, here was his plan. He had this bottle of whiskey. He was going to drink it, and then he was going to shoot himself. He didn't want to live. He didn't want to face the fact, hey, his decision had affected 20 young men, and they're never going to see their wives, their moms, their dads. So he drinks half the bottle. As he drinks half the bottle, he puts the gun up, and he positions it. As he's about to pull the trigger, something startles him. He hears something, and he's where no one is, and he looks around, and what's this? He doesn't see anything. He thinks his mind's playing games, so he drinks the half of the half that's left. He takes the gun. He's putting it where it needs to be, and he's about to pull the trigger, and he hears it, but it's louder. And he looks around, and there's nothing. And then third, the third time, he drinks all the rest of the bottle, and this is it. He's committed, but this time he hears it again, and he hears it louder. But he recognizes it. See, as a little boy, when his parents would go off, they would drop him off at grandma's house and grandma would take this little boy and hold him in her lap and had this giant book and she would read it and then she would stop occasionally and she would sing. Well, what he didn't know was what she was reading was the Bible. But when she would stop and sing, she would sing a song that went like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And what God was doing was he was hearing that. And it kept getting louder and louder in him. And on a hill that no one would be able to find, he fell on his face and he said, God, if you're real, I need you to know you now. And that's when he met Jesus. Now, I don't know what your life is, but I doubt you've made a decision that has cost 20 souls. I doubt you made a decision that was so profound that you affected 20 lives. But if God can give Don, my friend, hope, there's no hope he can't give you. And the saddest thing to me is People who don't know Jesus are looking at us. And when we look and act as hopeless as they are, why would they ever want Jesus? There's another thing about hope, and that is that hope transcends life. See, our hope just isn't for this life. Our hope is for the next life that there's something bigger than this life. So number one, God created you to be a person of hope. Number two, hope does for your soul what faith does to your heart. Number three, hope can change everything the way it did my friend. But number four, your hope is bigger than this life. There's a verse we like to quote in churches. It's Romans chapter eight, verse 37. People really get excited. It says, nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. People stand, shout, run, dance. You know, I'm more than a conqueror. But what most people don't realize is that what Paul did next was he gave you four extremes that he mentions. And that's what he's referring to, that we're more than conquerors. He says, we're more than conquerors. And the first one he says 
is that we're more than conquerors in death and life. Now, here's what you need to know. No one in this room, if you were writing that verse, would write it that way. You know how we would write it? We would say we're more than conquerors in life and death. Only God starts with the word death. And you know the reason that God starts with the word death is he's saying there's life after death. I've held the hands of 17 people when they took their last breath and they went to heaven. All 17 of those people, I knew they were going to heaven, but it's hard to hold their hand. But here's what I knew. I was holding their hand and right up until they took their last breath, I was sorry for them. But in a split second, they were looking back and they were feeling sorry for me. So can I tell you about Dell's dad? People may be feeling sorry for Dell, but Dell's dad's now feeling sorry because he's seeing Jesus in a way that no one else is seeing him. See, we're more than conquerors in death and life. Our hope is so important to our lives. Father, I pray right now that the God of all hope would give these people hope. I pray, Father, that people that because of COVID and the newscast and the negativity and the politics and the heartache of life that have lost hope, could you just give them hope today? Could you show them that their hope's not based on man and this life? It's based in you and your life. Could you give people hope for their marriages where they've just said, our marriage will always be bad? Can you give people hope for their kids? My kids will never serve God. Will you give them hope, Lord, for their businesses, their jobs and career? Will you give people hope today? Will you do like you did for Abraham and give people hope when there's no reason to have hope? Will you do that? Before I close, I want to tell you one more story. My wife and I, Jenny... Um, we love vacationing out in San Diego. It's our favorite spot to go to. We had gone on a trip out there and we were gonna stay a certain number of days. And then one morning I woke up, I said, sweetheart, I think we need to get back to Plano a little bit early. And I said, I just feel like there's a reason. And she says, well, whatever you feel. And so we got on the plane, we headed back. We get to DFW, the airport. We're heading towards Plano. I have on my heart, I pick up my phone and I call a man named David in our church. And David is just a wonderful man, but his wife, Karen, uh, was dying of stage four colon cancer. And so I called David and I said, David, how are you doing? She said, well, pastor, I knew you were on vacation. I didn't want to call you, but Karen's in the hospital and she's not gonna live much longer. I said, David, I'll get right there. I got there as quickly as I could. I walk in. There's the head of the bed down there. Karen's there. David's on this side of the bed. I walk up on this side. David's holding Karen's hand here. I pick up Karen's hand here. And then I reach across and I grab David's hand. And I said, I want to pray. And I pray just a prayer about the peace of God and how God leads us through the valley of the shadow of death when I'm finished. Karen takes her last breath. She goes home to be with Jesus. David's crying as David should. His bride's now in heaven and he's down here. We're there for a minute and I'm talking to David as we're still holding Karen's hands and I'm holding his hand. 
But we start to walk out because we need to tell the family. So we start to walk out and we're about to tell the family. We get almost to the door and David says, I can't do this. I said, David, I'll take care of everything. I'm thinking he's talking about the funeral. And I said, David, I'll take care of everything. I've done it so many times, it'll be fine. He said, I'm not talking about the funeral. See, when Karen died, she left David with seven kids under the age of 17. He's now a single dad with seven kids. He says, I can't do this. I can't raise seven kids. I don't know how. Karen was the glue. She knew everything. She knew what to do. I don't know any of this. Pastor, what do I do? I said, David, I don't have an answer for that. But said, I do have this. And what I have is you know that you've been filled with the Spirit. Because in our church, we believe like this church that you can be filled with the Spirit. And one of the things God gives you is he gives you a heavenly prayer language. So that you can pray perfect prayers that you don't know how to pray. And I said, every day when you go to work, it's 40 minutes, I want you to pray. And on the way back, I want you to pray. I want you to jump ahead a year after that. I'm standing at the front door of our church. David comes up to me and he says, Pastor, do you know what today is? I said, David, yeah, it's the anniversary of Karen going home. I said, I miss her. I know you do too. He said, yeah, but do you remember what you told me? And I said, and I recited what I just told you. He says, I've done that every day, 40 days, 40 minutes up, 40 minutes back. And he said, all I can tell you is somehow God's caused our family to thrive and our family is doing wonderful. See, God had a way of letting him pray a perfect prayer that no one would know how to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that right now you would help people. Give hope where there is no hope. Let people understand that hope is an anchor to their soul. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm gonna ask three questions. The three questions are these. First of all, do you have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you were like Karen and you took your last breath, that when you take your last breath down here, that you're gonna open your eyes up there? See, if you don't know that, you can because the Bible says these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. So if you don't know that, I want to pray with you because it's the game changer. It means that when you close your eyes here, you're going to heaven. But the second question, maybe you're a Christian, you say, I'm a person of faith, but are you close to Jesus? Just because you believe in him doesn't mean that you're close to him. But Jesus didn't come into your life to be close to you. I mean, to be just a a part of your life. He came to be the center of your life and be close in your life. And if he's not, I want to pray with you. But number three, if you're a person of faith and you're close to him, have you ever been filled with the spirit and received that heavenly language to pray a perfect prayer when you're in circumstances and you don't know how to pray? Three areas. If you don't know him, I want to pray for you. If you're not, if you know him, but you're not close to, I want to pray for you. And if you can say those first two and you're not filled with the spirit, I want to pray for you. So in any one of those three areas, you know that I'm talking to you. I'd like to pray with you. If you'd like to be a part of that prayer, if you just raise your hand wherever you're at. 
I see that hand, 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 I see that hand. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to pray for you. So I want everyone in this room, everyone in this room, if you'll stand. Everyone stand. Everyone in here is going to pray this prayer. You say, I didn't raise my hand. You're not praying it for you. Church isn't a spectator sport. We've turned it into one, but it's not. You're either receiving in faith or you're helping someone else receive in faith. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And what that prayer is going to do, it's going to do one of three things. You're going to repeat it. If you don't know him, you're going to get to know him. If you know him, if you know him and you're not close to him, you're going to come close. But if you're those first two and you want to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to get filled with the Spirit. And God's going to give you a heavenly prayer language. So everyone in here, you repeat after me because we're helping. Heavenly Father, you said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that I would be saved. Today I'm doing that. I believe with all my heart that you are my Lord. Therefore I thank you for saving me and changing my life forever in Jesus' name. And today, Lord, I'm asking you to fill me with the Holy Spirit and to give me my heavenly prayer language. And I believe that when hands are laid on me, I will instantly receive the Holy Spirit and my prayer language. I believe that when hands are laid on me, I'll instantly receive the Holy Spirit and my heavenly prayer language in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, I want to just say to you, because you don't know me, but I get to speak at the greatest churches all over America. I want you to know I love your pastor. I want you to know he's a good man. But we also have a resource table if that's of interest to anyone out there. But here's the thing. Pastor Dell's going to come up and he's going to tell you what to do next, how to get hands laid on you for those of you that raised your hand to receive the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. It was an honor being here. Today, wow. We are going to just have an amazing altar time. <laughs> God is in this place. There is faith at an incredible level. And I, I believe in total agreement, the second we lay hands on you, you'll receive your prayer language. So I'm going to have our prayer teams come up. 
And, and I would just love for you, we're going to ask the worship team to come right now. They're going to do a song and, uh, and, and just to come and we will pray for you. Just come, just come right now. Uh, if you're giving your life to Jesus or, or to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I just think it would be powerful if you'd come right now and be up here at the front when we pray over you because I think it will give you faith to receive that prayer language and all that God has for you. Lord, we're just so amazed and so thankful that you're moving in this place right now. We're just celebrating that people's names have been written in the book of life today and, and that this is the beginning of everything new and different. And so, Lord, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And bless each one, Lord, as they go today as well. Just anoint them. Give them your grace this week. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Please come forward. If you like prayer, you're dismissed. God bless you. We love you. Have an amazing week, but we'd love for you to come and, and let us pray with you today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Heart for the World Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that God's Word has inspired you today in a way that will boost your faith greatly. We want to encourage you to visit our website at hftw.church and follow us on our social media. May God bless you richly.